I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. In our continued study of Jesus in the Old Testament tonight, we're going to be looking at one of the strangest types or representations, I think, of Jesus Christ. It's a bronze serpent, a serpent on a pole that was identified by Jesus himself as being related to Jesus and his work on the cross. This raises a lot of questions, and we're going to try and answer those questions, because in those questions, and the answers to those questions, I think we learn a lot about typology and how to see Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, I'm very excited getting into the series, because what's going to happen over the course of many weeks is we're going to stockpile all of these examples of types, and it's going to, I think, make us pretty good at finding these types of Christ on our own throughout the Old Testament. So, <clears throat> so here we go. Um, I've titled this study in my own notes, Nehushtan. So if you wanted to, <laughs> I'll explain that later, but Nehushtan. It's a fun, fun Hebrew word. So in John chapter 3, we actually see Jesus bringing this up. So here's a little intro to this from the words of Jesus in John 3, verses 14 and 15. He's speaking to Nicodemus here, and he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Um, and so he, he, that's, that's where Jesus relates this. So everything I'm about to share with you is based on the fact that our Lord himself said that this was related to him somehow. And this is built, of course, on the foundation that Jesus also said that this was what was meant by the Old Testament, right? This isn't just him grabbing an example saying, hey, here's an analogy of me. But we also have Jesus telling people that all of the Old Testament's about him, that that was the original design. So we're looking at it from that perspective. So here's some of the questions I'll try to answer today. Is Jesus comparing himself to a serpent? Because that's what really strikes people as odd. Is Jesus comparing himself to a serpent? Which would normally we would think of as a satanic type thing. Um, and if so, why? What is the point there? Um, also, what specific points does the New Testament say correspond to Christ in some way? Like, we'll just start by saying, what are the things Jesus says? This piece of the story relates to this thing that I'm doing. Like, what are the exact connections, the parallels? And then we'll ask this, are there additional points that aren't laid out in the text, but by studying the two passages, we can find them on our own? So that's kind of like where we get a little bit of creativity going on. Hopefully we're not fabricating things, but we're, we're discovering them for ourselves. <clears throat> um, and then, are there principles that I can learn from the way that this is a type of Christ? So there's a bronze serpent, this is a somehow a type of Christ. Can I learn some principles from this that will help me find my own types? And then, finally, because I want to incorporate the theology of typology, after we do all that, we're going to answer the question of, can we learn new theology from types? Can we learn new theology from types? So this is a, a question about how we approach typology in the first place. Um, so that will come after we do the type itself. <clears throat> so here we go. Um, the two passages we're going to be in is Numbers 21 and John 3. Those are our two chief passages tonight. So let's start in Numbers 21. We're going to look at verses 4 through 9. This is, this is the, the scenario, the very short, short story where this bronze serpent comes up pretty much without explanation. It's like, this is what happened. And then many years later, Jesus relates it to himself. So here's the story, Numbers 21, verse 4. It's speaking of the wanderings of Israel after they left Egypt, and now they're in the wilderness on their way toward the promised land. And in Numbers 21, 4, it says, From Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, 
and the people became impatient on the way. It's a, it was a journey that was made unnecessarily long because they couldn't go through Edom. They had to go around Edom because of conflict that would arise if they tried to go through. So the people become impatient. <clears throat> and the people, verse 5, spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And let me just point out, they're talking about the manna. The manna, right? The, the manna bread and the manna cotti. The, <clears throat> whatever, you know, fill in the, fill in the, uh, the, the blank there, whatever. Manna burgers, whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> manna tacos. So they, they're complaining about even the, which just shows you the level of complaint. Because God is, is, is providing them with the bread from heaven, so to speak. A different type of Christ, which we'll get into in a future time. And they're complaining and griping about it. They're complaining, it says, against God and Moses. Now, it sounds like they're just complaining against Moses, but the text tells us that their complaining was really also against God. And then in verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many uh, many people of Israel died. Um, so God's not, not cool with that. He sends fiery serpents. That word fiery is actually a bit of a challenge. Uh, when they're translating it, it could mean the word fiery. Actually, you could translate it seraph. Does that sound familiar? Seraph. I, I wouldn't. I, I could say you could not translate it and say it's seraph because that's the Hebrew word for a type of angelic being. But it's also clearly a word used to deter, to uh, represent a serpent. So it's called a fiery serpent. Some translations would say flying serpent. It probably in this context, it's definitely not talking about spiritual creatures. It's it's talking. I won't go through the whole study I came through to, to get to this conclusion, but it's talking clearly about the actual snakes or serpents themselves. They're, this word is probably being used about them because of either their color, they had a particular bright coloring, so they're called these fiery, shining type things, or because of the sting of their bite. When they bit you, the poison burned, and you felt it like it was burning you, so they're fiery. Um, <clears throat> so then, this goes on. Uh, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, this isn't related to the type, but it's in the passage. So let me just draw our attention to it. The judgment that, that's coming upon them is because of their rebellion and their unbelief, and there's a lesson for us in this. Their rebellion was manifested specifically by them complaining and having a doom and gloom attitude about their lives. And I think that we should take note of this, because sometimes we, we over-spiritualize some things and we under-spiritualize others, and maybe we under-spiritualize our griping and complaining and it's possible that our complaining is not just our, I'm just getting it off my chest. Or I'm just venting. I mean, couldn't the Israelites have just said, oh, Moses, we're just venting as they get bitten and die. You know, because, because it shows how God felt about this. So we have to be cautious and guard our hearts. It's not as though you can never bring your complaint to the Lord because you can't. So I don't think we should go too far with this truth. But at least absorb it into our lives. That there's a type of complaining that says, God, I'm not trusting your plan for my life. I'm not trusting your provision for my future. And I'm dis, 
disregarding or even disdaining what you have provided for me today, this worthless bread. I'm I'm just spitting in the face of what God has given me. So guard your heart because complaining can reveal a, a very spiritual, very genuine spiritual issue. But what happens next is the people repent after they're bitten and many of them die. They start repenting. That's in verse 7. And they admit it. We've, we've sinned against God. We've sinned against Moses. They fully admit what they did. And they ask Moses to do what? To pray for them. Moses, uh, this is a side. This is just a bonus for you. We're not doing Moses today. But Moses is, is a type of Christ. And one of the ways he is is that he intercedes for the people. Uh, on behalf of the people, he goes to God interceding for them. Um, so he goes and he prays for them. And then... Um, the scenario is the people are doomed and the bronze serpent is made. The bronze serpent is set on a pole. These are just the data points we're going to then apply to Jesus. The bronze serpent is set on a pole and the solution is look at it and you'll be okay. Just look at it. So let me answer a quick question before we move on to the words of Jesus. Is this idolatry? Is Moses building an idol? Because this is what honestly, this is what oftentimes liberal scholars do. They'll grab a passage like this and they'll go, you can see that idolatry was still happening within the people. Um, this is a little bit laughable because this sort of scholarship only works on people who don't actually read the Bible, right? Because you know, if you read the text of scripture, that the Bible is very clearly against idolatry from page one, from in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When you compare that to the other creation accounts of, of other peoples at that time. So no, it's not idolatry. Um, some people, they want to take one passage, pull it out of context, use it to attack the Bible with it. But it's just, this is just the twisting of the Bible the same way cults do it, where you grab a passage, use it to say what you want, except in this case, they want to say unbelief. And so they, they use the Bible like that. Second Kings 18.4, this same bronze serpent pops up again in the scripture. And the problem is now it actually has become an idol. You see, they're not worshiping it in Moses' time. There's, you're just, you look at it, you live. That's it. End of story. Um, it wasn't wrong to just make artistic works. There was nothing wrong with that. The temple was full of artistic works, representations of angels and different pomegranates and things like that. Mmm, pomegranates. I like pomegranates. Um, but Second Kings 18.4, what happens is they've begun to worship this thing as an idol. And so one of the kings of Israel comes up and they're having a revival and he clears out the land of Asherahs and he destroys the high places and he takes the bronze serpent which they've turned into an idol, and he breaks it into pieces, and they call it Nehushtan, which means a thing of brass. Now, this is the biblical worldview. See, the unbelievers of the time would have seen an idol, and they thought, oh, there's some sort of spiritual significance to this, this image, and this, there's, like a, there's like a spirit in it or upon it. But the king of Israel, that king of Israel, knows the word of God, and he says, it's a thing of brass, you dummies, it's a piece of brass. Like when Isaiah mocks the idols and he goes, with, with some of the tree, you make an idol. And with the other, you burn it. Hello? <laughs> McFly, like God's like trying to get their attention to show them the folly of idolatry. And so that's very consistent in the scriptures. Um, and, and the Second Kings 18 passage kind of supports that. So now let's look at Jesus in John, th- John chapter 3. And we'll look at the specific context of his conversation with Nicodemus and how this thing relates to him and we'll ask some tough questions that should give us good insights so john chapter 3 verse 13 it says no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the son of man and as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life for god so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the context is where he's telling Nicodemus, you've got to be born again if you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be born again if you're going to see it. And then he's explaining to him how this is going to happen. And he talks about his mission, right? He talks in verse 13 how he's from heaven. And he's, no one's able to go to heaven to access God, but he's come from heaven. And how will he achieve our salvation? He'll be lifted up. You guys already know what this is talking about. This is talking about the cross. This is talking about his death on the cross. But what you might not know is how much John, in the Gospel of John, actually talks about that with the phrase lifted up. So that, that phrase lifted up is the Greek uh, hupao. Hupao, that's a, that's a good name for a kid if you want. Just throwing it out there. But it means to lift up or, like physically, or metaphorically to exalt. And so sometimes it's actually used in a very positive sense, like you're being exalted. Like when I say, I exalt you, Lord, it's like, I hupao, or just hupao, because it means I exalt. It's, it's a Greek thing. Um, or I am exalting, technically. So it means to lift up, or it means to exalt, and there's these two different senses. Now, normally in the scripture, there's 12 uses of exalt like this, hupao, in Matthew, Luke, Acts, 2 Corinthians, James, and 1 Peter. And every time, it's used in the metaphorical sense. To lift up is like to exalt. But in John, there's four uses of the word. And every time, it's a reference in a physical sense, in a physical, literal sense. And it specifically always relates to the cross. So John is clearly talking about the cross. Jesus is in this passage. So let me give you the examples of the same word lifted up. Because lifted up seems like a generic phrase, right? Why should I really assume this is about the cross? Well, John eight twenty eight, it says, And Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, same word, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. So he goes, when you've lifted me up, how, how, would, they, how would they know who he is? Like they'd know his identity. They'd get who he was when they lifted him up. And there's a couple ways this happens. I think the, you don't separate the crucifixion from the resurrection. And so the, the death and resurrection stands like as a testimony to who Jesus really was. Like that's when the light bulb went on for, pe- for most people. But some, the light bulb went on when he was crucified. And Jesus did something. He did this cool rabbi thing when he was on the cross. A rabbi would traditionally quote the beginning of a passage to load the passage in the mind of his students. Right? So I could do this. I could say I'm going to talk about Genesis 1. Well, I didn't call it by chapters back then. I would just say, in the passage, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you start going, oh, yeah, yeah, the earth was out from a void. Okay, day one, he creates light. And it's like, okay. And you start kind of loading the passage in your mind. Well, that's how they would do it back then. And Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, this messianic crucifixion chapter written before crucifixion was invented and it's like they're on the cross for the student of scripture who sees him and they go pierce my hands and feet like dogs they've surrounded me the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me oh wow and, and they start thinking of the passage itself like they're gambling from like clothing and casting lots from so the light bulb was going on beginning at the moment of his crucifixion i think that's kind of i don't know kind of exciting i think it's just cool you know it's neat as God just like pulls the veil off, you know, and goes, ha ha, like that's what I was doing that whole time. Um, and so <clears throat> the next passage is John 12, verses 31 through 34. We get the word lifted up twice, used twice in this passage. So John 12, 31. It says here, Jesus speaking, he says, now is the judgment of this world. 
And now the ruler of this world will be cast out, speaking of Satan. And when, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, there's that word lifted up, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So clearly this is a crucifixion. He's talking about lifted up. And then the crowd, they get it. They, so the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So from their Jewish perspective, they're thinking, we expect Messiah when he arrives to just stay and reign forever, right? This, he's going to reign forever. So maybe Jesus is saying that the son of man is different than the Messiah. And the son of man is this character that will die, but the Christ, he's going to remain forever. So they're confused. They don't understand that there's two comings of Christ. He dies and he reigns forever. Both are true. But clearly, the point is, clearly they knew what Jesus meant. When he said, when I'm lifted up, they understood the context of this. This was about him being crucified. <clears throat> Finally, there's John 18, 32 um, that supports this. It says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So throughout John, we have these multiple places where Jesus refers to himself being lifted up. This refers to the crucifixion, and so it does in John 3. So in John 3, when Jesus says, as, as the serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So as the serpent was put on a pole, the Son of Man must be placed on the cross. So lifted up is clearly about the cross. And can I draw us to one other interesting passage? Um, I'll give you a mo moment to turn there because it's too cool. So Isaiah 52, verse 13. <clears throat> we all know Isaiah 53 is the messianic passage, right? Or it's the suffering servant passage. But some people don't realize it actually starts in 52. Um, Isaiah 52, 13 is the first verse of that section, of that section of Isaiah. This is a, this is a really neat passage, totally relates to what we're talking about today. And it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The interesting thing is you would think in isolation, Isaiah 52, 13 is, is, is saying that Jesus will be exalted, <clears throat> like purely in the metaphorical sense. But it says he'll be high, he'll be lifted up, and he'll be exalted. And Jesus is both, in the physical and the literal sense. But as Isaiah 52, 13, as you continue reading, it says, Behold, look, my servant, he'll be high, lifted up, and exalted. And then it describes all the shame and pain and suffering he goes through for the rest of the chapter and on all the way through the next chapter of Isaiah. He'll be lifted up. And what does that mean? How will the, how will the servant of God be lifted up? Oh, well, he'll be bruised for our transgressions, wounded because of our sins. He, he's going to bear the chastisement of our peace, right? Well, all we like sheep have gone astray, but he'll, he'll bear the sin and the consequence of all the sins of mankind, of all of us. So, um, what we're looking at here as we do, especially as we do Jesus in the Old Testament, is just the consistency of the scriptures in talking about this theme of Christ and who he is and what he would do. <clears throat> so it's kind of a poetic irony that the term lifted up is used to represent the sh most shameful moment, but at the same time, the moment in all of history where God's love and grace was most exalted. That we, we look, I mean, Christians literally take a torturing murder device and put it on the walls of their churches because we see it as the moment where Jesus was lifted up, both physically and exalted. We see it as God's love. So it's a beautiful thing. So lifted up 
clearly about the cross. Now let's talk about this serpent, how it relates to the serpent. The serpent was lifted up on a wooden pole. Jesus was lifted up on a wooden cross. On a wooden cross. I think Galatians 3.13 brings a little bit of information to this as well. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Here's another, you might say type of Christ, but I, I think this is a different kind of type. A little bonus one for you tonight. I can't help it, but they kind of come in here as we're studying one, we get more. Um, <clears throat> but turn to Deuteronomy 21. As we're putting this all together, um, we're seeing the significance of the cross itself as it was, a, it was called a tree, and it was fair to call things a tree. This is not, this isn't cheating. It was fair to call things a tree that were not living trees. It was, but it was wood. It was the wood from a tree. So Galatians 3.13, you're on your way to Deuteronomy 21, but Galatians 3.13, right? It says, Christ became a curse for us. And then it says it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Well, here is the passage in the law that says that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And I think a lot of times people don't understand this passage. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. It says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him... Uh, the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Now, I'm going to explain why this is a type of Christ in some sense. But first, when you see hanged, you tend to think a noose. But that's not what they mean. They mean hanged, like I hung a picture on the wall. I just I fixed something to something else. It was hanged. It was supported not from being standing, but being from being attached to something else. That's the idea of being hanged on a tree. But in Deuteronomy 21, this is not where the law is prescribing killing somebody by hanging them. Rather, what was the Old Testament way of carrying the capital punishment? Stoning. So in Deuteronomy 21, it's saying if you kill them, as in they've been stoned, and then you hang them on a tree as a way of displaying the person who was stoned, and who was brought under the curse of the law. The cur- What's the curse of the law? You sin, you die. That's the curse of the law. And so then they 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 sinned to the point of, of, of death, to the point of the death penalty. They ex- experienced the death penalty. They're placed on a tree. But God's like, I don't want in Israel the, the person to sit on the tree or on the pieces of wood or whatever for days and weeks and months, which is something that was not uncommon in those other cultures, to display the, the people who had rebelled against the culture or rebelled against the government, to display their bodies for long periods of time. God goes, I don't want that. That person's been cursed. I don't want it to be, you be displaying that. Take them down after a day. Seems innocuous, right? Until you realize it's all about Jesus. And you go, Jesus, this whole cursed, hanged on a tree, cursed by God, it relates to the fact that Jesus takes the curse of all of mankind upon himself and there he is hanging on a tree. And there's this text in the Old Testament to help us understand the theological implications. Jesus became a curse for us. He became a curse, it says in Galatians. Um, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. <clears throat> now that, that's a whole different kind of typology, right? That's a, this is conceptual typology. I, I don't know what else to call it. Where you read the Old Testament law and you realize that some of the laws that make you go, huh, I wonder what that's about. They, they sometimes relate to Christ and connect to this New Testament reality. So um, I can't help but think, and I, I need a better analogy than this. I know I do. But you guys remember the old Karate Kid movie? 
back in the day when Daniel-san was being trained by Mr. Miyagi. And Mr. Miyagi, he's supposed to be training him in karate, but instead he tells him, you know, wax the car. Wax on, wax off, right? And paint the fence. And he's really, like, strict about it. You can't just, like, paint the fence. No, no, paint the fence. Oh, you got to paint the fence like this. And then there's some other job he does where he's doing something like, I don't know what he was doing with that, but he, there's some reason why he was doing this. And Mr. Miyagi at one point when Danielson gets really mad, like, why aren't you teaching me karate? Mr. Danielson, or Mr. Danielson, Mr. Miyagi attacks Daniel. And he tells them to paint the fence and to wax the car as self-defense from the attacks. And Daniel's like, whoa, I know karate, right? It was like Keanu, he's going, I know kung fu. Like he suddenly is aware that he's got these skills. And the thing is, Mr. Miyagi gave him these like repetitive things that would then relate to real life karate. Although I'm not saying that you can really learn karate by painting fences. It's a story. But the analogy to scripture is there. God gives them these rules and these policies and these pictures and these typologies so that when it comes to Jesus, it's not totally new information. Instead, it's like, oh, oh, I get it. Oh, I understand. And the light bulb goes on. So that's kind of like the conceptual typology. Um, so the serpent's lifted up on a pole, back to the serpent passage, right? It's lifted up on a pole. It's placed on the pole. Jesus was lifted up on the cross. He was placed on the cross. You would look to the serpent and you wouldn't die of your poison. You look to Jesus and you will not die of your curse. It seems pretty simple and really beautiful. And that's the point. That's the beauty of this particular type is it's so simple. It's, it just relates to just, it's not works. No, no, your work's got you here on the ground, writhing in pain. And Jesus, he comes, he does the job. You just look to him. But there's more in it. Um, he says in John three fourteen, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. As the serpent was lifted up, so must the Son of Man. This is, think about this. The serpent, there was no option. Like, you were bit, you were going to die unless you looked at the serpent. It, it was a simple thing, but it was the only way. And isn't that Jesus? It's absolutely simple, beyond simple. But it's the only way. It's the only solution to the curse of our sin. It was a life-threatening crisis with a simple solution. Um, and I think it has a special message to Nicodemus the Pharisee. Because here's the Pharisee, right? The, the people are standing under Moses, under the law, and they're condemned in their sin. And there's something else that Moses points them to, the serpent. Right? He, he can't do it, but he could point them to it. And they can look at that and they can be saved. And so Moses, he points to Christ. Jesus said, you, you study the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but it is them that testify of me. He's the truth and the life. So beautiful. But, but then there's the issue of the serpent itself. Um, is Jesus the son of man being compared to a serpent? Some people say no. Um, some people say that he's not. But I think he is. I think if you just read the words, it seems like he's comparing himself to this. As the serpent, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the son of man must be lifted up. In the parallel, Jesus isn't the pole. The pole's related to the cross, but Jesus is related to the serpent. So how is this, is, is this relating Jesus to Satan? Is this the parallel here? I think not exactly, because in the context of the passage, they weren't being attacked by Satan. They were being attacked by serpents. Plural, not one serpent. And serpents don't all represent Satan. That's certainly not the case. This is good news if you own a snake. Don't worry. It's not satanic. It's just a snake. Um, so there was lots of serpents. 
the serpents, though, what did they represent to the Israelites? They represented their, their consequences of their sin, their rebellion against God, was answered by judgment that came in the form of serpents. So if anything, they don't represent messengers of Satan, but messengers of God coming to destroy them because of their sin. So it represents their sin and the judgment for their sin. And in a sense, God takes our sin and the judgment for our sin and lifts them up, puts them into Christ on the cross. There's a powerful statement that it's, it's difficult to understand in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says that Jesus was made to be sin. Now, it's careful to say who knew no sin. Like, this is not like him sinning, but he became sin on the cross. And so, in a sense, the serpent representing Jesus is kind of drawing our contrast, our awareness to what did Jesus do on the cross? What sort of shame? What sort of experience was this? What was, what was Jesus? Well, he, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He was not a sinner on the cross. He became sin on the cross. Wow. He became the offense, the wickedness, and the judgment. All of it centered right on the cross. But that being said, it's hard not to see Satan in some way represented. I mean, you know, the first time you see a serpent in scripture, it's, it's Satan. Um, when you see a serpent the last time in scripture, that's Satan. Um, the great serpent, you know, um, we, we see this, that serpent of old, he is called in scripture. So how could the serpent relate to the cross in some sense or Satan in some sense? Well, John 12, 31, I read this earlier, but Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And this is where the serpent takes on almost a different picture because you realize it wasn't actually a serpent on the cross. It wasn't a real serpent. It was a bronze cast serpent. It was something to represent the other thing. And then you look to this thing to have power over that thing. And so we see Jesus become sin and become all of the atrocities in some sense that we've committed against God so that we might have victory over not only the judgment of God, but over Satan himself. So we, we see... So much come together on the cross. The cross is like the, the fulcrum. You, you ever hear this, the story? Who was it that said if he had a, 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 a fulcrum and a lever long enough, he could move the world? You guys remember who that was? Pythagoras or one of those guys. I don't know who it was. Him, uh, someone like that. Bart Simpson. One of those guys said that. And, but the fulcrum is that, that thing where you put the lever on top of it and you can, you can pivot and move everything else because of that. And, and since the cross is like the fulcrum. Everything else comes together and is impacted and changed. The direction of it all is changed. So the sin of man comes together on the cross. The law, the law of God comes together on the cross as Christ fulfills it. Mankind is represented by Jesus on the cross. God is represented by Jesus on the cross. So man and God come together. The trees, both of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil and the, uh, the tree of eternal life all come together at the cross. Because here's the knowledge of good and evil being brought, brought to bear and the payment being made for it, but also eternal life is being purchased on that tree. Um, mercy and justice, both the forgiveness and punishment, they come together at the cross. Wrath and grace come together at the cross. The fall and redemption come together at the cross. Judgment and forgiveness come together at the cross. Life and death come together at the cross. And so we have not only human things, but supernatural things that come together in some sense, conceptually at the cross. So in that sense, I think the cross is the fulcrum. 
and Satan is overcome at the cross. And, um, and in this, uh, I'll, I'll share something that would be actually be uh, probably controversial to some people, but the, some people have made a big deal about the fact that back in the day, not necessarily with the, the Israelites or biblically, but in the same time period as them amongst other peoples, they had something they called, um, uh, well, it, it was some, ter- some form of magic. I think they called it, um, not replacement magic, something else like that. There's some other term for it. But what they would do is they would they would say, oh, we want to have power over whatever this negative thing is in our life. We'll make an image that represents it, and then that will give us power over that other thing. And you see how this relates to the bronze serpent, except the bronze serpent isn't said to have any powers. God does the healing. He tells them, just look at it. So we don't see this in the text. But if you understand that that might have been in the mind of some of the people, then you can see how this relates to we'll have power over Satan as we look to the one who overcomes him on the cross. And so there is maybe, maybe some correspondence there. So that, that's for the people who, some of you are like, what are you talking about, Mike? But for those who've heard this before, I feel like this might help you understand how it relates to a, a, a good theology and not using it to, to rob people of good theology. Um, the cross is actually compared to a tree in the scriptures. Um, and it's the tree where Satan originally tempts Eve, right? And then the cross is compared to a tree. Chris is, is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then we have the tree again in Revelation in the garden or the, in the new paradise, the new, the new, new heaven. And we're partaking of this tree. Uh, Colossians 2.14, it says, By canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So in this passage, the the record of our sins and debt are nailed to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. And in the, the next verse there, Colossians 2.15, God's triumphing over the rulers. So this is talking about spiritual beings. It's talking about Satan and his dominion. So he triumphed, triumphed over our sin, triumphed over the enemy. It all comes together on the cross. So here's... Here's a principle I think we can learn from this uh, as we studied. I think we we haven't exhausted every aspect of it, but nor do I want to do that until you're just bored to death with me talking about it. So here's a principle we can learn from the bronze serpent analogy or picture um, is that when there are things that have, that aren't the same as the cross or the same as what Jesus did, but there's a pattern that's similar. We can see this as a type. So, the serpent on a cross, you might... Now, if I had come up with this myself, you'd be like, Mike, that's not a type. You're just making stuff up. Or wouldn't you be thinking that about me? Like, come on, a serpent? Don't compare that to Jesus. How is that related to Jesus? The serpent. And they look through it. That just seems kind of pagan to me. But instead, it was actually meant to meet them right where they're at and give them a picture that one day, you know, he'd be like, wax on, wax off. Oh, I get it. You know, like, and the light would go on. So I think we can look for things in the Old Testament that have similarities to Jesus that are not direct parallels. But when you grab them, you go, you know, there's several points where it really does line up. This may well be something God intended us to find. It may well be that. So let me read to you again. John three fourteen. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. This phrase, as, as the son of man, Jesus uses this phrase a few times. He, he goes as and uses an Old Testament story and then goes the son of man and uses a New Testament reality. So another example of this is Jonah. 
in Matthew 23, 39, he says, um, just, actually, Matthew 20, uh, Matthew verse 40, chapter 12, sorry, I'm getting all tongue twisted. Um, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As Old Testament, so will Son of Man, New Testament. In this case, it's just a piece of the Jonah story. Three days and three nights, down in the belly of a great fish. So the Son of Man, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In Luke 11.30, Jesus draws more on the Jonah analogy and says, uh, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. This is a different side of Jonah too, right? Jonah, he, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, right? And how does, how does he arrive at Nineveh? He's barfed up by this fish, by the sea creature, who throws him up, and he may or may not have died. As you read the text, he may have actually died. There's actually te- it's, it, you don't know if is he being symbolic here or did he actually die? Anyway, and then he gets barfed up after three days, and they see him, and they're taking him more seriously now, right? Like some stranger just came, and he's telling us random things. Okay, dude, this guy just got thrown up by a fish, and he says he has a message from God. I'd be like, what? Like everybody's at least listening now. <laughs> and so as it was a sign to them, something that drew their attention, like something's going on here that's more than just this guy. So Jesus, his resurrection is a sign that something's going, something is going on. Um, so there's a prophetic comparison. Old Testament pieces of this story relate to pieces of Jesus's story. That's a fair comparison. We're legit in looking in the Old Testament for that kind of parallel because Jesus himself did it. There's another principle I think we learn um, as we go through these stories. If you haven't noticed it already, you probably have in your own studies, but it's the huh factor. Um, when you're reading an Old Testament passage and you go, that's awfully strange. And so often, that's the very story that represents Jesus. One of the most shocking first stories you read in the, in the Old Testament is that where Abraham is told to kill his own son. And people are like, what is going on here? I can't get over this passage. And I'll be, I'll be like, me either, man. I can't get over it either. But for a completely different reason than you. Like, this is about Jesus, you know? This is a parallel of Christ. There's so many passages where you go, what is this talking about? Why is this even here? And those passages often are the very ones that represent Jesus. So we have the bronze serpent. We have Jonah being thrown out by a fish. We have Abraham offering his own son. We've got the rock that Moses struck twice once God got mad at him for it, right? Then we have Abraham, uh, or excuse me, I already said that one. We have Melchizedek. And the story of Melchizedek, who, Abraham meets this guy Melchizedek and he's tithe. What is going on here, right? These passages are all about Jesus. And the, and the New Testament identifies all of them as being referencing Christ. It's just beautiful stuff. So the principle I learn is, when I go, what on earth is going on? Look for Jesus. Don't make stuff up, but just begin your search. You know, look for Christ in that passage. Um, there's another principle we learn uh, when looking for types, and that is they all fall short. Every example we've, we've gone through so far, they in some way fall short, right? Um, Jonah, he, he was in a fish and then thrown upon the sand. Jesus... He died and he was resurrected, right? The serpent, the bronze serpent was lifted up and it just brought them physical life. Jesus, he was crucified and brought us eternal life. This is a a very different thing. Um, They all fall short, just like a shadow falls short of being the thing that casts the shadow. Right? The shadow, you can identify some people by their shadow. Have you done this? Your friend walking up and you see their shadow and you go, I know who that is. And the same thing is true. We, We see his shadow in the Old Testament. But of course it falls short of the type. So what does this mean? Um, 
where the thing falls short, I don't go, oh, therefore it's not a type. Instead, I just go, this is to create a need for Jesus in the heart and mind of the people. Hebrews does this in the book of Hebrews. It talks about how the blood of bulls and goats would never satisfy to take away sin. It fell short, but it did represent Christ. And so these types, they represent Jesus, but they often fall short. I think that's a very interesting thing to know. Find where, the, where they fall short because there may well be a message for us in the very fact that they fall short. There may be a message in that. Because the message as we read through Hebrews especially, and which is a great thing to study as we're looking at types. I encourage you on your own, just read the book of Hebrews. Look how Hebrews just keeps focusing on the fact that Jesus, yeah, he's like that, but better. He's like that. He's like the priest, but better. He's like these angels, but better. He's like, you know, you name it, the, the prophets, but better. Um, Jesus is better. Okay, now I'm going to ask my final question uh, that we'll get into tonight, which is, can we learn new theology from typology? So let's suppose that I'm reading the Old Testament and I come across something, I get real excited about it. I go, hey, I'll bet no one's ever seen this before. <laughs> which that never happens, by the way. But let's say you go, no one's ever seen this before. This psalm is definitely messianic. This is about Jesus or, or this, this, this guy right here, Peleg. In the days of Peleg, when the earth was divided, like that's about Jesus and he came to divide you know, husband and wife and father and children. And, and this is talking about, and so you find something and you think this relates to Christ somehow. But in your discovery of that, you, you, along with that, you come up with some new theology. Is that legitimate? Can you do that? I think the answer is going to be no. Um, I think one of our rules for typology is you can't come up with a new theology because types are representing who? Jesus. He's the reality. That's the shadow. He's the reality. If I look at the reality and then I look at the shadow and I go, you know, I think the shadow teaches me more about you than the reality, then something's wrong. Like say I look at your shadow and your shadow looks like you have a gun sticking out of your hip. And I go, ah, oh, they have a gun. Look what I discovered in the shadow. But then I look at you and it's a banana. <laughs> right? Then I go, you drew too much knowledge from the shadow. And the same parallel is true here. Don't draw new, brand new teaching in theology out of the shadows of Christ. So we just look to the, the, this is a safe way to do typology. You've got to stick with the current existing theology of the scriptures, the clear teaching, and not come up with new stuff. The Bible says that the faith was once and for all delivered, past tense, to the saints. We're not going to learn new stuff now. Um, the mystery has already been revealed. Christ is the revelation. And so we've already received it. So then you might go, well, Mike, if I can't learn new theology, and all I can find is representations of Jesus, then what's the point? Somebody's going to have this question, right? And, and part of me, I just want to go, what's the point? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> all I'm going to do is discover new ways in which the scripture represents Jesus. Like, yep. <laughs> what's wrong with that? Like, if that doesn't delight your soul, then I don't understand. Um, I don't get it. Um, but may I say this? You won't learn new theology, but you might get a better understanding of the theology you already have. You might learn to get it deeper. You might learn a practical symbol that represents a, a solid teaching in the New Testament, but the representation of it, the symbol of it. Man, when I saw Abraham offering his son, it just brought me to new depths of what God did for me. It's not new theology, but it's new depths in your theology. There's a lot for us to learn. It drives the truths of God deeper into our hearts and minds as we see it through the scripture. And you realize more and more how stinking amazing the Bible is. I am blown away. I don't have enough words to describe 
the amazing genius that has gone into the text of scripture for us. I'm just in shock and awe. And as we, as we study these things, you're like, this was written by, you know, multiple authors over thousands of years, different generations, different people, different languages. And here's, here's Jesus and here's Jesus and here's Jesus and here's, and he's my Lord and my savior. And it just, it blows me away. So, um, neat stuff, neat stuff. And next time, next time, uh, which will be three weeks from today, because for two weeks we're not meeting because we have things going on with the church on Sunday nights, um, and Father's Day, and then we have that, the, the talent show coming up. So, so here's what we're going to do, preview for next time. We're going to look at theophanies in the Old Testament. So we'll look at theophanies and Christophanies, and what's the difference, and, and we'll a- answer some tough questions about those things. So I'm, I'm uh, very much um, looking forward to, to getting into that stuff. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your holy word. We definitely take it for granted. Um, but we pray that you'd open our eyes more and more so we learn to take the Bible less for granted than we did yesterday. <laughs> that we'd see this, this treasure, um, this most amazing thing, uh, the scriptures, the word of God, Lord. Um, it has never stopped being absolutely amazing, but sometimes we don't appreciate it for what it is. So we pray we wouldn't miss, we wouldn't miss it. We wouldn't miss out. We, we know that we don't receive eternal life from the, from the word of God, the Bible, but these are the things that testify of Jesus. Um, and so we want to learn, we want to grow, we want to receive. And so we pray for wisdom, insight, and that you just keep taking us deeper. In Jesus' name, amen.